There once was a pastor who enjoyed sharing churchy words with his church. My kind of pastor. Churchy words with his church. He offered sermons on salvation, talks on tautology, teachings on teleology, the reclamation of the grammar of faith. Sometimes it went well and sometimes it did not. Sometimes he shared churchy words and a glaze came over the congregation in their pews. I've never seen what that looks like. Don't know what it must feel like. Sometimes he shared churchy words, went well, sometimes it did not. Case in point, the word anamnesis, anamnesis. Does anybody here know what the word anamnesis means? Has anyone here ever even heard of the word anamnesis before? Do we have it? That's how you spell it, by the way. Anamnesis, it's real, I didn't make it up. Anamnesis. So this pastor got up in his church, in his pulpit, he, he talked about anamnesis, he preached about it, he taught about it, he talked about it. Anamnesis is such a churchy word that we don't even use it in the church. That's how churchy it is. Anamnesis. The idea behind anamnesis is, uh, anamnesis is anything from the past that actually shows up in the present. Something that happened long ago that can still affect something right now. In the realm of the church, we have uh, what's called the Eucharistic prayer, the prayer that I pray during communion. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, that's a moment of anamnesis. It's when something from the past is actually changing the present. So when we say that prayer together, we believe that God from long ago is doing something to us right now. Anamnesis. And yet for this particular pastor in this particular place, the more that he talked about anamnesis, the, the less his church understood what he was talking about. And admittedly, anamnesis is a confounding thing. Time is tricky. It boggles our brains. But then one day, after worship, as the pastor was standing in the narthex shaking hands, not unlike I do most Sundays, one of his parishioners came forward and said, uh, Preacher, I think I'm finally starting to get a hang of this anamnesis thing. And he told him a story. The church member said, I was camping up in northern Minnesota, and I arrived so late to my campsite that I pitched my tent and I went straight to bed. I was just so tired. But then I woke up in the middle of the night. It was 3 a.m. I looked at my watch. It said it's 3 a.m., and it was light outside. And I thought, something has gone terribly wrong. He said, I unzipped the tent, and I rubbed my eyes, and I walked out, and it was bright. It was almost like it was daylight because the stars in the sky were lighting up my life. He was someone who lived in the city. He had never seen so many stars, no light pollution. He could see all the stars in the sky. He said it was so bright that he looked on the ground and he could see his own shadow cast by starlight. He said, without thinking much of it, I walked down to the edge of the nearby lake. It was so calm, so still, it was reflecting all of the light from the stars in the sky on the lake below. He said, for a moment, I felt like I was standing at the middle of the universe. He said, then I walked back to my tent to go back to bed. I looked down on the ground and I saw my shadow one more time cast by starlight. And I realized that the light that was lighting my life had been born in the hearts of stars billions of years ago. And yet for me, it was real in that moment. He said, preacher, is that anamnesis? And the pastor said, 
Amen. In the beginning, God. Those four words hold the key to unlocking the whole of the strange new world of the Bible. God has something to do with everything. On the only day when there wasn't a yesterday, God made everything. God spoke, and there was light. The same light that that man saw on the, in the night sky and reflecting in the lake in front of him when he felt like he was in the middle of the universe, that same light, time and light, are intricately connected because it takes light time to travel. Every time we go flip on a light switch, it feels like it's instantaneous, but it actually takes time for light to travel. The sun at the center of our solar system is 93 million miles away from the earth. 93 million miles. It takes the light from the sun eight minutes to reach us, which means after worship, it's starting to clear up. If you go outside and you look at the sun, don't look at it too hard or for too long. But if you do, you're seeing the sun as it was eight minutes ago. So kind of hard to wrap our, our heads around it. Alpha Centauri is the closest star outside of our solar system. It is 4.3 light years away. If you look up in the night sky, if you have a telescope and you find Alpha Centauri, you are looking four years into the past. One more. Orion's belt, one of the first constellations we're taught to recognize when we're children, those three stars that make the belt, they are 1,350 light years away. If one of those stars were to go out right now, we on earth wouldn't know about it until the year 3,373. And this is when all of us start to glaze over once again. <laughs> it's anamnesis. It's anamnesis. It's hard to comprehend. It's outside of our ability to really perceive because it is so close to the infinite time and light and how they're connected. When it comes to the beginning of all things, the best that science can tell us is that at a precise moment close to 14 billion years ago, a super hot explosion of unfathomable power and light initiated everything. And thanks to the wonders of technology, we can look into the past. We can see the past. We're never going to be able to look all the way back to the beginning, but we can get pretty close. And the light that we see gives us a glimpse of from when and from where we come. I mean, why are we here? How did all of this come to be? Why is there something rather than nothing? These are questions that we have asked since the beginning, and the beginning of the Bible answers some of our queries. In the beginning, God. It's no wonder then that the Apostles' Creed begins with these words, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and of earth. Whoever this God is that we worship is in the business of creating and making, constructing, beginning. And yet for some time now, these verses at the very beginning, these verses about the beginning, they have confounded and confused us. More than a decade ago, I was sitting at a table uh, with other pastors in Bryson City, North Carolina, and we were having a Bible study. There was a Lutheran, an Episcopalian, a Baptist, a Methodist, a Catholic. It was the beginning of every bad joke you've ever heard. <laughs> and we were all sitting around and we were talking about the lectionary text, the text that all the churches were going to be reading on Sunday, all the texts the pastors were going to be preaching on. 
And one of the texts that day was Genesis 1, 1 through 5, the very text that Hal just read for us a moment ago. And very quickly after we read it, all the pastors wanted to move on to one of the other texts. And I said, are none of you going to preach about creation this week? And they said, no. And in a moment of clarity, I decided to ask, have any of you ever preached on Genesis 1? And each of them said no. I did a quick tally in my head. There were more than 100 years of preaching represented at the table. That's more than 5,200 sermons, and not one of them had ever been preached on Genesis 1. Why is that? Why not begin at the beginning? My suspicion is that for those around the table, there was this fear, this fear of what it means to talk and preach about Genesis versus what science has to tell us, perhaps. And of course, the Bible never has been, never will be a scientific text. It does not seek to answer how, even though it does tell us how. Notably, I think it's important for us to notice that the order of creation actually parallels what Charles Darwin says happens in evolution. It's the same order of things coming into being. You have to have light. And after light, you have to have matter. And after matter, you have to have water. And after water, you have to have life coming forth from the water, then life flying in the air, then life on the land. And the last thing to come is humanity. Genesis 1, Charles Darwin. It's the same. And even with this strange harmony between science and religion, even though we actually have far more in common than we are at odds with one another, it's not the Bible's concern to answer how. The Bible cares way more about why. Why does God create? Why does God make all of this? Because nothing has to be. All being needs a creator, not only for its beginning, but for every moment of its being. God's creative act through word continues to act in every single moment. God's word is still speaking, is alive, filling all things with glory. All being begins with God. Light and love, matter and manner, God is there at the beginning. And not just Genesis 1, but when you and I breathed our first breaths, the beginning of every friendship, every step in a different direction, every idea, every belief, every smile, every tear, God is there, God is, and because God is, we are. In the beginning, God takes nothing and makes something, brings order out of chaos makes a way where there is no way. God from the very beginning has been in the business of something instead of nothing. That we exist, that we are here, is sheer gift. Because we don't have to be. From the moment of our first breath to our very last, God is with us. Which is why we can catch a glimpse of the end even here at the beginning. Because all of us are all too well aware of how fleeting and fragile life is. Many of us were gathered in this room yesterday for a service of death and resurrection for Charlie Dale. Every funeral is a reminder that the bell tolls for us all. We know not when. God says that all this is good. I wonder if we can say the same. Because there's the threat of chaos, that same chaos that Genesis tells us about. We can see it on the news. We can see what's happening on the other side of the planet. Are we not afraid for what's happening in Israel and in Palestine? 
And it's not just about what's happening on the other side of the planet. It's happening here in Roanoke too. The threat of chaos, the threat of annihilation, of nothingness. Let us then for at least a moment be honest that it is scary sometimes. That we're afraid. Of course, it's a beautiful fall morning. Some of us have plans to spend the day outside. But what happens when all these beautifully colored leaves begin to fall? And we see nothing but barrenness around us. What happens when the rivers roar over our perfectly planned barriers? What happens when that unplanned midlife crisis shows up at the front door? Or we're distracted by our phones when we blow through an intersection and we hear screeching brakes? What about when we get that note from the boss when we didn't think we were getting a note from the boss? What about when we get that phone call from our doctor with our results? What do we do? What do we do when it feels like everything is falling apart? What can we possibly hold on to? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. There's a reason we affirm the creed every single week. And not just we, but Christians all over the globe say these words week after week. It tells the story that gives meaning to all of our stories. We worship the God who is almighty. That means nothing is impossible for our Lord. God makes all things, even us. And chaos, emptiness, is no match for the one in whom we live and move and have our being. There's an old hymn that talks about this. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Let there be light, says the Lord. Let there be heaven, let there be land and water and swarms of creepy, crawly things in the sea and the sky and on the earth. Let there be life. And God says, this is good. Whenever there is creation out of chaos, whenever there is light in the gloom or something out of nothing, that's good and that's God. Even the chaos of death can hold nothing against God's power to bring the dead to life. God is for something and not nothing. Even in death, God creates a new reality we call salvation such that our end is actually a new beginning. Anamnesis. I was thinking about it yesterday here at the church during Charlie Dale's funeral. Charlie, uh, with his family, shortly before he died, shared with him, look, if you do a funeral, and the if was not conditional... If you do a funeral, you have to sing these three hymns. He was a member of the choir. He loved to sing. So we sang the three hymns that Charlie wanted yesterday. And I was kind of bowled over with these moments of anamnesis yesterday. Because I think music can do that to us. You don't have to go to northern Minnesota and stand uh, under the stars in the middle of the night. Anytime you sing a song, have you ever experienced this before? It doesn't have to be a hymn. It can be the Rolling Stones for all I care. When you hear a song and it transports you back to another time, another place, another moment, music has this kind of radical power over us to take something from the past and have it change the present. There's a, a song from my past. It's also from Deborah's past. I think it's from some of our pasts. It's called the Gloria Patri. 
the Gloria Patri. It's a song that when I was a kid, we sang every single Sunday in church. I mean, I cannot think of a single Sunday from my adolescence that we did not sing this song. I asked Deborah if it's ever been done here, and she said maybe a couple times in the time she's been here, but if we did it, in, it with regularity, it was a long time ago, like more than a decade ago. The Gloria Patri. But there's a, a chance that even if you've been in another church at any point in your life, you might know this song, you might know this tune, and we're going to sing it. So in your hymnals, is it 72, Deborah? 71. 71. I was off by one. How about that? You will turn to hymn number 71 in your hymnal. You will find the Gloria Patri. This song is important because this song speaks of the truth of anamnesis, of how God loves to confuse time. And notably, if you look at the bottom of 71, well, at least the bottom of Glory Be to the Father, you'll see that the words are very old. As old as the Apostles' Creed. So let us sing this song together. about you, I hear that tune, I hear those words, and I am 10 years old, and I am standing on the seat of a pew cushion hearing my mother say, sit down, Taylor, sit down, Taylor. (laughs) I am brought to the past. I can see the saints of the church that I grew up in singing this tune together. My mind expands, and I think of all of the Christians throughout the centuries who have clung to these words and these Melodies when they have nothing else to cling to or know. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. World without end. Deborah, can we do it one more time? I can't hear. I can't. I go ahead and do it one more time. Sorry. This one's just for me. <laughs> Is that anamnesis? And the pastor says, Amen. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.